sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi there. Welcome to this podcast. My name's Margaret Munro. I'm a speech pathologist um, at the Wesley Hospital in Brisbane, and I'm currently about to start a PhD on dysphagia. We're really lucky today to have Professor Ionessa Humbert with us, um, and she's going to be helping supervise my PhD project. Um, Professor Humbert is a founder of the Swallow Neurophysiology Lab in the US. Welcome, Dr. Humbert. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Right. So um, to talk about something that's quite topical in our field, um, if we talk about modified diets, for instance, that's a a big topic. It's relevant. Um, When I was listening to one of the podcasts that you do, um, these podcasts are called Down the Hatch. You can all go and look them up. They're fabulous. Um, You mentioned a term or you referred to a term, a phrase where you said you felt that in this country, i.e.us, um, you were you guys were going through a bit of an epidemic of modified diets. I thought that was a really interesting phrase, so I just wondered if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, so the one of the things that speech pathologists do is try to adjust food consistencies, textures, etc., with the aim of making them easier to swallow. So there are a couple concerns there. One is one would have to confirm both the consistency that's difficult to swallow and the consistency that's easier to swallow, and that would often require imaging. And a lot of speech pathologists don't have imaging to confirm uh, that there is any difference with the different kind of texture. So that's one. The second thing is um, it's not confirmed in the literature that making things easier is rehabilitation, Um, especially since you think about practice with something that's difficult is what's going to make you better at it. So if you take it away from somebody, how will they learn to improve on it if they never get a chance to practice with it? So if thin liquids are moving too quickly and you make everything thicker, how will they learn how to respond to a faster moving bolus if they don't get to experience it? And finally, we don't spend a lot of time talking about um, what knowledge speech pathologists have when they're training on things like nutrition, bolus flow dynamics, um, and all these fundamental things that imply both physics and um, medicine, yet we seem to be very quick to change a diet without thinking about those issues, and importantly, How does the patient feel about this? They often don't get a choice. We seem to be changing diets because it makes us feel comfortable and makes us more less nervous than whether or not it actually will improve anything related to swallowing because we're so afraid of aspiration. So uh, that's that's sort of the big epidemic, and it's global. It's not just the United States. Um, I would also venture to say that I have a lot of respect for a lot of the work that folks have been doing, like Katrina Steele with the ITSI diet, 
and just making sure that in the same way that we want to make um, medications uh, standardized in terms of dosing, you would, in the event that you do actually want to modify a diet, it's nice to know that we all have the same phrases or ideas in mind when we talk about a particular texture, in the event that it is what it is, in fact, what's best for the patient. But I would argue that what we actually need to know is what the consistency is like before they swallow it, not before it goes in their mouth. Yeah, that's so a, a gram, good point. So a graham cracker is solid before you swallow it, but it can be broken down as as well as a, a applesauce by the time you're chewing it. So really, we ignore the mastication and the person's ability to mix in saliva and make a decision that, yes, this is swallowable for me, because we what would we have to do? We'd have to have them spit it out to know, well, what consistency would that have been? So we're cutting off solids, solid foods assuming that once they get ready to swallow it, it's still going to be the same solid shape. And no one's actually tested that. So it seems pretty like we have a lot of work to do across all these issues. Yeah, I, I love that answer because I think that that's... I think it, it's a point that we we ignore a lot. We prescribe modified diets widely and it is something that that we should be thinking about is after patients finish masticating it, if it's going to be the same as a modified diet, then what exactly is the point? And if there's no, if we don't have any evidence or any reason to think that mastication is an issue, if it's all pharyngeal phase mm-hmm. that we know of, then mm-hmm. yeah, certainly I think mm-hmm. that um, that should be something that we consider. I think the other thing about deconditioning, mm-hmm. you know, when you were talking about if we take fast-moving fluids away, then the system is not going to get a chance to practice mm-hmm. and. Um, as as part of that kind of concept, we're we're also dealing with the deconditioning of the system, aren't we? We we could potentially be. I mean, if you have somebody who has issues with um, locomotion, specifically with stairs, in that situation, if they have a house with stairs, you don't make them move or get an elevator in their house. Mm. You either give them the skills to practice, unless they are so in danger of falling that you then make everything they need on the first floor. Yeah. So we before a person even gets a chance to use stairs, put everything on the first floor so they never have to use it. And that's what happens when we take away any potential challenge. And I understand that we can't go in there and catch the bolus. Mm. But I would also argue that this is where instrumentals and including sensation can be helpful. One is, is the person aware of the issue? Can they um, sense it and learn to sort of prune their behavior based on their experiences. If they never aspirate or never have a situation where they're struggling with the bolus and, and sort of don't know what to do with it, maybe that's part of what, what our training is supposed to be. Is in the same way a PT deals with falls, yeah. um, is to recognize, look, sometimes patients are going to fall and sometimes they're going to really hurt themselves. Yeah. But our job is to minimize that. Now, mm. if you're being completely negligent as a, as a rehab specialist, yeah. I can understand that. But I don't think um, PTs are you know, going at home hemming and hawing and <laughs> because they sent a patient home who they didn't get to test every possible surface yeah. with when walking. Um, they do their best and they know when they send people home, things are going to happen sometimes people come back with head injuries maybe it's because they followed instructions maybe because they didn't so we have to prevent we have to avoid our fear being the factor as opposed to physiology science yeah and there have been there has been a paper published hasn't there on iatrogenic dysphagia Mm -hmm. yeah that 
caused by rehab rehabilitation, yeah, right? Exactly. So the extent to which they actually have a problem that's exacerbated by seeing a speech pathologist, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the factor. I mean, are yeah. we actually and you know, if we look at a lot of the good work from Susan Langmore and Jess Pasegna, um, and Susan's been doing this work for a long time. If we go back to her paper from 1998 saying how important is dysphagia in in aspiration pneumonia, it's not a major factor. Yeah. Um, the other issue is that she's shown that a lot of the rehabilitation techniques that we employ aren't necessarily impacting swallowing, yeah. right? So the literature is not on our side. No. And there's some unmodified diets, but you know, you can aspirate thickened liquids as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, aspirating thickened liquids could be worse under some circumstances, depending on what the patient's situation is. I mean, we are yeah. micro-aspirating our saliva all the time. Yeah. So perhaps a thin liquid is easier to get up. Now, I will draw the line at um, obstruction that will kill you in a sh very short amount of time yeah. because you can't breathe. But that's, a, some, that's something that a lot of humans, whether they have dysphagia or not, understand. Yeah. But a lot of times speech pathologists are not so much thinking about choking where you can't get air passage. They're thinking about aspiration and our bodies do have something in place to clear that and it's called coughing yeah. so you know let the, let's see what the patient can do can they bring that bolus back up by coughing yeah okay well th that's been really really super interesting thanks so much for your insights into all of that Inessa. we've been really lucky to have you thanks yeah i'm really excited to be here thanks for this topic i think it's an important one we hope you enjoyed this week's conversation Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.